Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the New Books Network. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. Uh, welcome to Think About It. I'm your host, Uli Bear, and I'm very excited to have two guests today to talk about the philosopher, writer, and thinker, Hannah Arendt. Um, so my guests are both at Stanford University. Courtney Hodrick is a PhD candidate who's nearly finished with her PhD and an expert on Arendt. So Courtney, first of all, thank you for joining us um, today. And my second guest is uh, Amir Eschel, who is the Edward Clark Crossett Professor of Humanistic Studies at Stanford University, um, a longtime friend and colleague who has been a guest on this podcast. We've talked about Paul Ceylon before, um, and we have worked together, and I actually remembered this morning, Amir, while I was Googling you, that we co-edited a volume of essays on Arendt's work called Arendt Between the Disciplines. And for our listeners, I'll just uh, remind them, the podcast is available on Spotify, iTunes, all the podcast platforms. I'm on Twitter as at Uli Bear. The podcast also has a Twitter at Think About It or Uli Bear Podcast. And you can find, I think, 155 episodes uh, on various thinkers. We had, I had the great pleasure to talk to uh, Richard Bernstein about Hannah Arendt. Um, uh, he passed away a few months ago, which is a really great loss for us. And he was Arendt's student, which for me was very, very moving to talk about uh, Arendt with him. It was a very funny conversation, also very moving, very personal. And I also talked to Samantha Rose Hill about Hannah Arendt once who published a book conversation. Uh, so first of all, uh, Courtney and Amir, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's great to be here. Same here, Uli, always a pleasure. So, so I thought Courtney, maybe, um, you know, I, why I contacted you is because I was talking to Amir about Arendt's book from the 1920s, which wasn't really published until the 50s, her biography of a Jewish woman who lived around 1800 in Berlin and founded and ran for a while a literary salon with intellectuals, writers, diplomats, important people, uh, Rahel or Rachel Varnhagen. And she wrote this 
kind of an intellectual biography of this German Jewish woman from 1900 and Arendt called her once, which I found very sweet and moving. She was my very best friend, but she lived a hundred years before me. And maybe we can start there. And this book is to me, I, I have to say I was really absorbed and I've read it now several times and it seems to lay out all the topics that Arendt will engage with throughout her life. At the same time, it's a very strange book. It's not a proper biography. And, and in some ways, maybe you can start us out by saying, what is the status of this book in Arendt's work since it's very, very early in her career that she writes it? Yeah, that's a great question to start with. I mean, I think you've said it perfectly. It's a really early work. She's thinking through a lot of the questions that are going to occupy her throughout her career, in particular, questions of Jewish identity, questions of history, what it means as a person to live in a society, how the individual defines herself in relation to her society, in relation to her heritage. Obviously the question of Judaism and anti-Semitism, which she picks up in different ways in the origins in the Eichmann book. Um, but it's also, you know, I love that quote about her seeing Rahel as a friend because it's such a loving and lovingly critical portrait of another thinker. I think she really, she doesn't want to do a hagiography and say, you know, this is the greatest thinker of a generation and we should all be worshiping her. Like that's not what she's doing. She's just trying to understand. And all the way in the end of her career, when she writes The Life of the Mind, she comes back to the question of thinking and understanding and putting yourself in someone else's perspective, which for her is so key. This imaginative process, you know, this enlarged mentality, she's sort of drawing on Kant, right, as she's thinking about this. But, you know, the idea of thinking, what does it feel like to be inside someone else's head becomes really key for her for the task of philosophy. And I think she didn't even realize how key it would be when she was writing the Varnhagen book, but it's what she's doing. She's sort of lovingly trying to understand what it would have looked like inside someone else's head. And I think that's a really exemplary attempt. I don't think she always sticks the landing in this book. Um, you know, I think you can see the ways she grows as a thinker afterwards. It's, it's, an early, it's an early work with all the sort of euphemism that that entails. But there's something lovely about the way that she approaches the task of as you put it, intellectual biography that makes it a really enjoyable read and enriches our understanding of everything else that she thinks about throughout the rest of her career. Um, Mia, do you want to uh, add a little bit to this? Because Courtney, you really sort of map out how she, how Arendt finds her topics, but almost through Von Hagen. Von Hagen has written this enormous corpus of letters. Arendt just reads them and says, here are all my questions. So, so Uli, since I agree with everything uh, 
Courtney said, uh, let me let me try maybe to see other ways by which we can approach this uh, wonderful and also strange book. Um, I think, you know, in the most general sense, what fascinates me in reading the book uh, is really the question what it means to narrate a life, uh, what it means to, to take a life of a person who obviously is no longer with us and try to turn it into some kind of a sense-making narrative. Uh, all the challenges we face when we try to do so uh, as writers, as intellectuals, um, as you know, someone who's fascinated with the life of, of another human being. So I think the book also opens up a, a very general philosophical question about really the meaning of kind of life narratives uh, and this uh, endlessly complicated, fascinating attempt of turning a life into, into a story. Uh, and then there are two, of course, two more specific elements to this question, to this task. Um, the first is, um, what does it mean to uh, account for a life in a narrative uh, when we come to a woman? Uh, Arendt is writing the book uh, in the 1930s, uh, but I think that the challenge uh, remains uh, with us, you know, of course, today, 2022. You know, I've been reading recently Rachel Kask's uh, trilogy uh, outline, and one of the major topics, I think, or themes in the trilogy is the question, what does it mean to account, to tell the story of a life of a woman, uh, given the fact that uh, women are still facing, as they did, of course, in 1933, and as Ra Rachel uh, or Rachel uh, faced uh, 18th and 19th century, um, the fact that they're marginalized, discriminated, uh, ignored, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, so I think the book, uh, although it is, you know, was written in, in the 1950s um, or published in 1950s or written, uh, of course, much earlier, but published in 1950s is strikingly um, of our time and strikingly fresh when we read it from today's perspective. And I have, you know, Roe v. Wade uh, in my mind, of course, when I'm saying what I'm saying. Uh, now, the other issue, of course, is the question of you know, accounting for life uh, in a narrative, in a story, when it comes to, to Jews. Uh, what does it mean to try to come up with a life story of a Jewish person, a Jewish intellectual in this case, a Jewish woman, of course? Um, what is this curse, with quotation marks, of course, uh, what is this curse of you know, being born Jewish? Uh, and again, in a fascinating uh, manner, uh, you know, here we are, 2022. Uh, we thought for a while that this question of being born a Jew is no longer quote unquote relevant because, you know, we've all learned the lessons of the Holocaust and anti-Semitism is an issue of the past, et cetera, et cetera. Yet, lo and behold, as we all know, uh, anti-Semitism is on the rise uh, all over the globe, various forms, incarnations, faces. Uh, so the challenge of a uh, Jewish life, I think, uh, is as 
existential as it was when Arendt was writing the book, of course, as existential as it was for Rachel Warnhagen herself when she was living her life trying to simply exist as a Jewish woman. Um, and this again makes this book uh, utterly timely uh, and in fact demanding of us to pay attention uh, to it. Let me stay with these, this, these two aspects. So there's a woman who is Jewish. It's around 1800 when Jewish people are granted very few distinct rights in, these, in the Prussian state or German state, and they have some rights and all these things that we have now might actually take for granted historically, that their challenges is their path of assimilation, of emancipation, of living apart from society. But in the first chapter, and this is what I read so many times, there's this idea that Rachel or Rachel von Hagen happened to live at a moment when the enlightenment kind of is, comes to into full bloom. This is the moment when reason triumphs over superstition, over religion, the, 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 the tyranny of the monarchs is reason that somehow it's no longer this absolutist rule. And so she has to, this woman is trying to position herself and ground herself in herself in her, what Courtney said, thinking or reflecting on her experience. But, um, uh, you're still, you're still um, she's trying to think about her experience and she's not saying, I'm Jewish, I'm a woman, this is my given identity. But she's saying, I have to create something totally new because there's really no social category for a woman or for a Jewish person to participate in public dialogue in the way she wants to participate in it. And this first chapter, Aaron sort of is testing out the limit of this enlightenment idea. We can all liberate ourselves from our own self-inflicted kind of servitude or something like that. These Kantian maxims or Rousseau's, you know, man is born, in, uh, born free, but everywhere lives in chains. But this kind of self-determination that we can free ourselves from our own conditions and circumstances merely by the act of reasoning and, and thinking. And I think there she goes quite far and then she says, well, this is also the kind of problem and the fantasy of the romantics. This is it. So, so can we just stay with this idea that she's positioning or trying to posit an identity, which may be social, political, all these categories that Arendt will develop throughout her life. But this first effort, it's just, and I, when I read the letters, I read, uh, you know, not all of uh, Van Hagen letters by any means, but a lot of them, I've rarely read some, with such incredible intelligence who's also all over the place. It's just every sentence goes wherever it wants to go. She just keeps on saying this and writing and this and that and this, but it's just an amazing intellect. And you can sort of see Arendt getting really excited and getting really frustrated because there isn't enough structure to it. But maybe if we stay with this idea that this woman happens to live around 1800 when people, presumably not everybody is listening to Kant's lectures, is being taught, you can kind of free yourself from your self-inflicted servitude or bondage by just developing your mind and your and reason. So this is something I find really fascinating about Varnhagen because she's such a foil for Arendt. Because I, especially, you know, thinking about in the context of today's politics, something that Arendt, a move that Arendt makes that often alienates her to modern readers. And I've found this in particular when I've taught Arendt, 
is that she was very resentful of the idea that just because she happened to be a woman, she was expected to be a feminist, that just because she happened to be a Jew, she was expected to be a Zionist. You know, the things that sort of get broadly grouped under the category of identity politics, good or bad, she rejected. She was, Arendt was such an individual and wanted to think for herself and wanted to come to her own conclusions. And yet she sees in Varnhagen, this woman, who is really trying to break free and be this completely independent intellect, independent of all forms of givenness, she sees a real tragedy in that because Varnhagen was able to sort of get away from the heritage she had been given, but she ran full force into an anti-Semitic society, a sexist society, a world that would always see her as a Jewish woman. And so she ended up in this really tragic in-between position where she wasn't able to ground herself in the past. She wasn't able to draw on her heritage. She wasn't able to, you know, I, I like what you said about her thoughts being all over the place. You know, she hadn't received that sort of education, both as a woman, but also as an assimilated Jew. She hadn't been given a history that she could use as a foundation to build herself a new future. And yet the world insisted on imposing all of these expectations upon her. And so I think Arendt really does see Rahel running up against the limits of the attempt to liberate ourselves from our givenness. And at the end of the book and at the end of her life, you know, Arendt talks about Rahel Varnhagen goes back to writing her letters in Hebrew script and embraces in the end, especially in her friendship with Heine, embraces a model of assimilated, she, she remained assimilated forever, but like assimilated Jewishness that advocated for Jews as Jews rather than, you know, Arendt, this is sort of a running theme throughout the book, Arendt sees in Rahel this desire to be the special one who was able to get out of the circumstances that everybody else was stuck in. Um, I think Arendt has a little bit of that for herself, especially when it comes to gender. You know, she wanted to be the thinker who was so great that she didn't need feminism, right? That she didn't need to think about gender. Um, it's something I'm pretty critical of her for. But, you know, I think she sees Rahel Varnhagen embracing, advocating for Jews as such, rather than individuals escaping from Judaism and sees that as a positive trajectory. And it adds some nuance to a lot of the ways that Arendt wrote and thought about her own identity as a Jewish woman, because she obviously goes through the same questions and faces, you know, even more horrific anti-Semitism, faces sexism, faces the same issues that Varnhagen faced. Can you say a little bit more about what does it mean for her at the end to think, I am assimilated, but I'm fully aware that I was born a Jew. And there's this idea that some people will hide this, get baptized assume new names and basically blend into Gentile society. As Sholem will say to Arendt 100 years later, 
the great and tragic misunderstanding of German Jewry that this was possible when the Nazis ultimately root out all these assimilations and say, this is not, this never happened. But when you said von Hagen is trying to live in the society, assimilated, and yet, yet as a Jew, to preserve her difference, know it, but not insist on it in a way to say, my difference becomes my identity. I think this is really, for, and what you said, what Arendt about her own, when she, what she says, I am a woman, or what she, she writes in letters, she says, of course, I have a very self-evident understanding of my own Jewishness. I never had a problem with it. She sort of, for her, everything there is self-evident. She doesn't need to interrogate it. These other people struggle with it. But for me, it's all just sort of, this is how it is. This is who I am. And then she moves on. But in a funny way, in Von Hagen, she examines exactly what she skips over in herself and says, oh, this to me was never ambiguous. I always knew I was Jewish. It's silly even to ask me this, especially after the Eichmann trial when people doubt her affiliation or affinity with the Jewish people. She said, this is absurd. And then people say, what you said, you as a woman, she says, that's absurd. But the absurdity that she thinks in this question, she examines in von Hagen over and over again, that von Hagen wants to insist both on her difference and be part of, a, or become accepted in society. I mean, and this is where the idea of plurality comes in, which is so key in our end. The idea that society will always contain difference. Um, I think this is one of the few examples where we see her really thinking about difference in terms of groups rather than in terms of individuals. Um, but this idea of having both and, that it's not about giving up the things that make you different in order to become part of a society. There's a line in the Von Hagen book where Arendt talks about anti-Semitism as a constitutive part of the Christian tradition. And you know, it was, it was everywhere and it was pervasive. And she makes the point that when you assimilate into a society that hates you, one of the things that you internalize is that hatred, that there isn't a form of neutrality where you are just nothing. You know, when she talks about the phenomenon of Jews choosing to get baptized, you know, for them to baptize themselves into a religion that in the time, in the context, you know, otherized them, subjugated them, marginalized them, is to choose to take on really, I would say, a form of self-hating. And you know, Arendt got called self-hating, especially as you mentioned, after the Eichmann trial and after some of the things she wrote. But I think she's really struggling with what possibilities actually exist given history and given that each of us arrives in a world that has existed before us, in which there are pre-existing prejudices, in which each of us is born into a position in society that has been determined by factors outside of our control? What are the choices that we actually have for how to engage with our own histories? What are the choices that we have for how to position ourselves within society? And part of why Arendt always saw her Judaism as self-evident was because she had seen 
this example of history and the tragic history of German Jewry and realized that there is no escaping the sort of centuries of history that come to bear on the individual. Um, and that doesn't come with any specific, you know, there's not, there's no specific thing that you have to do that she would say you have to do if you're born Jewish. You know, she wouldn't say that because of X, Y, Z, you know, you should observe so-and-so or you should do this or that, but the starting point has to be grappling with history. You can't start from this position outside of history because there isn't one. You know, Rahel Varnhagen looked for one. She couldn't find one. There is no one because, a, because of politics or, or lack thereof, um, which was, of course, the case for uh, Jews in Germany 18th century, 19th century, um, you know, they did not, perhaps they could not, I mean, we can leave this question open, um, form themselves politically as a group and speak for themselves politically as a group in concert, as, as Arendt, you know, would say. Um, and that's another thing I think the book grapples with, um, namely, Rachel may have been able to try to connect with others and speak with others as Jew, um, as, a, as a Jewess in, in concert, but she didn't. But was it really a possibility? Was it really a possibility for her? Uh, probably not, for internal Jewish reasons, uh, but of course for you know, German reasons. It, it was not a viable political path. Uh, so that's Rachel, uh, end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. I think when Arendt sits down to write this book, she grapples, of course, with the circumstances of her own time in, in which there is such a path. Um, so at least for a while, Jews in Germany could have formed themselves politically and speak in concert as Jews during the Weimar Republic. This did not happen. Uh, they rather joined, you know, German parties, or many of them became Zionists. Gershom Scholem, of course, being a prominent uh, example. Um, so again, I think the book thinks also the moment in which Arendt writes it, or invites us to think with Arendt when she writes it. What are the actual options? Uh, Jews have uh, in their given historical moment. Uh, another thing I think we should probably highlight here is um, the implicit criticism I think Arendt levels here at the romantics and at this romantic idea that one can live one's life as an artwork. Everything is possible. I'm this empty canvas. I can draw on this canvas, whatever I wish whatever I want. Uh, I'm utterly free. Everyone is utterly free. Uh, you know, we are doomed if we're not using our boundless freedom, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, this is certainly not the case. I think this book says implicitly, this is not the case. Life is not an artwork. Um, it's much more complicated. 
it's much more intricate. Um, the idea of freedom uh, is not the freedom to do whatever I choose and to live uh, in utter you know, disconnect or without any form of subjugation. Um, that's a very romantic idea of uh, freedom. Freedom is something else, something we need to pay much closer attention to. Uh, and later on in her life, Arendt will define it uh, as the ability to begin, to start, to set off, etc. Um, I think that she comes to this idea of freedom also from, from, from this book, understanding that the romantic notion of freedom in, uh, is something we cannot hold on to. Uh, it may be possible for some to live their lives as if it were a, you know, a, an artwork, uh, but it's not something uh, open to all of us. Um, and uh, Rachel is a good example for that. By the way, Arendt herself is a good example of that. I mean, let's think of her, you know, she finished her dissertation in Heidelberg with Jaspers. It's not that she could decide to become a professor. I mean, this path was not open for her uh, in Germany of the time. Uh, as a woman and as a Jewish woman, uh, she would not have become a professor of philosophy at a German university. Let's just, you know, put it on the table. Her decision to write this book, uh, this book was her habilitation, you know, the second dissertation, the key to enter German academic life is a case in point. She goes to this obscure Jewish woman um, as her topic, I think, because she very well knows that she might as well write about uh, Rachel. She doesn't need to write about Kant and Hegel and Schelling and, uh, and others. Um, she can turn to Rachel Panhagen because no one will give her a professor, uh, professorship uh, in, in Germany under any uh, circumstance. Wait, interesting, Liliana Weisberg wrote the, um, an essay on this for the German edition, and she recounts the story how in the 60s, Arendt was able to obtain restitution from the German state by proving that actually she was on a path to becoming a professor and this would have been accepted as her habilitation which was probably unlikely as you said but then the holocaust had happened the war had happened there had been some kind of sense that people had been deprived not just as you said institutionally but then the catastrophe of the holocaust right and then Aaron actually says no this would have been my path into academia and but I want to go back to this moment of what she questions about the romantics, this idea of self-invention. You totally imagine yourself. You become this new person, which in the American romantics becomes one side of Emerson's self-reliance. It's not all of self-reliance because Emerson is also a very political thinker and abolitionist. And, it, and what you're saying, this, she's, she, to me, it seems like in this Von Hagen book, she keeps on drawing on this idea that you can invent yourself out of whole cloth. You can just become yourself by the strength of your intellect and you keep on reflecting your experience and you turn that reflection into the ground of your being. This whole book to me, when I reread it, sounds like this is written in the 1920s. This is when Husserl is big, phenomenology. This is when Heidegger's writing and being in time because without skipping a beat, Arendt takes as seriously the most fleeting moments of romance, some slight this, 
the most profound political change, the defeat of the conquest by Napoleon. It's all one thing. All of human experience is subject to interpretation, the way phenomenologists approach it. But I think she keeps on hanging on to this idea that we can invent ourselves as these beings capable of making sense of just our experience. And then, as you said, she becomes skeptical and says, this is just fantasy because it's ahistorical and it does and it denies politics. And I wonder, like Courtney, when you said you sort of think, you know, as a woman, I think this moment of self-invention is a very powerful and kind of inspiring one in the beginning of the book. And I kind of, I was really excited. And then Aaron says, well, but this is a fantasy. This isn't gonna work. I, and I would be curious how, you, how much weight you give to it. Does she, Arendt keeps on going back to this and she uses Kant or Socrates and says, I don't wanna live in contradiction with myself. I wanna be in harmony with myself. There's this constant return to the power and the capacity of the intellect and reflection to generate a sense of identity. And then it's kind of hemmed in by politics or history. But I would be curious how much weight you give to that. I found that just the most remarkable part of the beginning of the book, at least. And I, I wanted her to go with it. And then she says, no, 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 don't, don't get carried away. Here's the limit to this. This is, this is a delusion or, or she called it fantasy, I guess. I mean, I think that's what's so fascinating about Arendt as a thinker. And I think that actually also was somewhere that her background in phenomenology comes out because she really, she's running experiments, right? Like she wants to figure out how far can we push this theory until it cracks? You know, obviously self-invention through the intellect is an important part of being a person. You know, we want to, we want to liberate ourselves from our self-imposed knowledge, Kant, et cetera. We want to think for ourselves how far can we actually go? And with Rahel Varnhagen, she finds that limit. Like, okay, the intellect can get you this far, but no further. Um, and I think there's something really profound. I think she does it, she does it as well with politics. When she writes, you know, I've been working a lot on, on revolution and I've been thinking a lot about the way that she writes about the American and the French revolutions. And there it's about how far can politics get you? What can politics accomplish? What can't politics accomplish? Um, you know, I think there's no one tool in the toolbox. There's no one philosophy of this is exactly how you're supposed to live your life. There's really this effort to figure out what are the important aspects of, I mean, and this is why she calls her book, you know, the human condition. It's not human nature. It's the human condition and the aspects of the human condition that she explores find how to balance them. And I think Varnhagen was unbalanced. She was trying to do too much alone. Um, Amir talked about Arendt writing about freedom as the ability to begin. Um, the other definition of freedom that she comes back to a lot is the Roman interhomines essay, being among other people. 
and there's a loneliness to this romantic self-invention because if I invent myself to myself, there's nobody to see me. There's nobody to reflect myself back at me. And it's in her friendships, it's in her letters, it's in the salons that she founded that Rahel found these spaces where people could reflect herself back at her. And this realization that Arendt has that even self-creation requires someone else because you need someone else to be with to know that you are a self. Um, and it's true that, you know, Socrates talks about self-conflict and the conscience and being in dialogue with yourself, and you're never alone if you're in dialogue with yourself, etc. Um, but friendship becomes so important throughout Arendt's life, throughout her writing. And I think it's because friendship gets us out of this romantic solitude where we are this beautiful self with no one to witness it. That's really helpful, Courtney. So let's say the romantic idea of self-invention, there's a limit to it. What if that limit is, to put it really in today's terms, the sy systematic sexism and the anti-Semitism of that society? So Von Hagen says, I'm gonna invent myself. She encounters limits that a man like who's reading Kant at that time, a German Christian of noble birth would not encounter because he would just keep on inventing himself. And so, so it's really interesting that she picks a figure who, how you just framed it, allows us to understand what are the limits to this enlightenment project of self-determination, self-invention in a creative sense, in a powerful sense, but she says, well, von Hagen can't accept the limitations because those limitations are nefarious and ill-begotten and, and horrible because they're just prejudice and bigotry. So it's not that she's encountering the limits because she says, well, my, my, my limit is that I live with others in the world. Because my limit is people don't even accept me for who I am. It's, does that make a dis difference? You see what I'm saying? How, and Arendt, for herself, as you both said, later on kind of continually refuses anti-Semitism and sexism as a limit on her. She says, ah, oh, these things happened. They were horrible. This is, yes, this is why, but this is not the limit to myself. My limit to myself is my capacity to think or I make, my, make philosophical errors and the greatness of my life can be my friends, my relationships, my correspondence, my community. So thinking about this question of if Varnhagen had been, you know, as we would say today, right, a cis white straight man um, of Christian birth, et cetera, um, you know, I think Arendt is making the point not only that society imposes limits because of prejudices, but also that, and this is where she talks about, you know, anti-Semitism being baked into Christian history. Everyone has a history. Everyone has aspects of their position in society that circumscribe who they are. Everyone has identity categories that they are born into. There is no neutral outsider perspective. Um, and it's really interesting. So she opens the human condition talking about Sputnik 
and talking about this launch of a human-made object out of the world. And she goes on to talk about the ideal of the Archimedean point far enough outside, you know, with a long enough lever, you can move the whole world, this point far outside of the world. And she worries in the human condition, and a lot of what the human condition is about is this worry. She worries that if we lose our worldedness, that if we go outside and seek this point outside, we will lose what makes us human. And the thing that I find so interesting about that, and I promise I will connect it back to Barnhagen in a moment, is that it anticipates in so many ways both feminist epistemological critiques of the Enlightenment and also post-colonial critiques of the Enlightenment. Because both say that basically the Enlightenment posited that we should try to achieve this outside view and, you know, it is only, so these critiques go, the sort of white privileged men who have access to that outside position. Um, but I think what Arendt would say is that nobody does and nobody should seek to, that the enlightenment effort to step outside of yourself, you know, is important, right? We wanna step out of our own perspectives. We wanna step into other people's perspectives, but this full self-creation, this full liberation from all givenness that the romantics sought isn't bad because women and Jews aren't allowed to do it. It's bad because people shouldn't do it, period. You know, the freedom to get to do that is not actually freedom. It's just solitude. And so I think, I think you've made a really profound point that Rahel didn't want to accept these limits because she thought that they were the result of the prejudices in her society. And there's an extent to which they were. But there's another extent to which these limits really are baked into what it means to be a person who lives in the world with other people. And, and so I think, you know, someone like Kant, right, would have run into these limits in a different way. It doesn't mean that everybody has equal opportunities in society. Obviously, everybody doesn't. But there's something a lot deeper than just the historical contingency of the fact that she was a Jew and a woman. This is this is great. Um, I want to suggest that um, another term here could, you know, help us along. Um, and the term, of course, is thrownness. Um, you know, Rachel is thrown into the world. She's thrown into a certain uh, set of life conditions. Um, and the question is, of course, you know, what to do with it. Um, one option uh, is to, to try to forget this thrownness, uh, to try to imagine, you know, absolute limitless freedom, the freedom of the romantics. And for a while, uh, this is what she will pursue. Uh, like with all attempts to forget our thrownness, uh, what happens is that we, what we in fact do, 
is to forget our mortality, to forget the fact that the life given to us is limited. The mistake of the romantics, and that's also the mistake of the enlightenment, is this fantasy of eternal life, of the ability to overcome our mortality, be it by the power of reason, if you think about the enlightenment, or by the power of the imagination, if we think about the romantics. Uh, Arendt, I think, comes out of a, a tradition in philosophy uh, in which, of course, Heidegger, uh, her teacher and, and mentor stands, uh, in which you know, we were invited not to forget, not to repress our mortality, to embrace our mortality and with it our limitations. You know, we try to escape the world you know, to go to other stars, I don't know what, to establish a colony on Mars, because this is the answer to all our uh, worries and all our problems, is to forget, to repress our mortality. Uh, Arendt, I think, in this book, and later on, of course, in her entire oeuvre, um, never forgets that uh, we cannot escape our mortality and that all our attempts to escape mortality uh, will lead us to... Um, you know, living a life of bad conscience, if we were to uh, use Saad here for a moment, who belongs also to some extent in this tradition. Um, let's not forget our mortality, let's not forget the limitations uh, of our lives, uh, but let's try to live the life we're given in concert with others the best we can. Which brings us full circle back to the realm of politics, uh, to what Arendt uh, considers as republicanism, uh, and in the United States we call democracy, uh, etc. Uh, embrace the life we have. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Wait, what you say about mortality, it's interesting, or finitude, that in Von Hagen's letter, uh, which is continually interrupts gaps and losses and experiences of negation, death is this completeness, so let's not be afraid. And then she moves on. So for Von Hagen, is that what you're saying, she knows that she is embarking on this project to find absolute freedom in herself, the freedom of the imagination. And so she wants to incorporate death into that, which is the project. The way politics in this book is the background, there are laws, there's Napoleon, but it's not a political book per se. And then Arendt becomes more and more interested in politics and it's a specific kind of politics or action. And I would be curious how she goes from this book into the work that she's most known for really as a political thinker or a political theorist. 
what I'm interested in is if the romantic idea of the imagination as creating a space of freedom, of imagining ourselves as unfettered by circumstance. And you're saying she actually tests this out, or as Courtney said, she runs an experiment and says there's a limit to it. This limit is not the specific bigotry of her society, but everybody will encounter a limit to their own self-fashioning. And there it starts to connect to what then Arendt will develop all these other topics throughout her life and what we would could group under politics. To live in community, a life with others in conflict or in, in harmony, whatever it is. But I'm kind of trying to understand how you get out of this um, very powerful idea that the self can create itself out of itself. And then Arendt says, well, there's a limit to this because it becomes a kind of solitary or solipsistic and actually very lonely process. And secondly, we are already, are always already in community, in relation, in conflict or in harmony. It's not always good. It's just we are already in relation. We're born like we're not born alone. So how does she manage to then? And the Von Hagen book, to me, politics is sort of there in the background in the air but it's not more it's like, politics is no more important than her engagements or her marriage or her friendship with Paulina her best friend or something like that all these things are equally important there's no emphasis say politics is the answer I'm gonna I'm gonna end this book and say aha this woman was not political enough right well I would say especially for a woman of that era engagements were politics um <clears throat> excuse me and I'm not I'm hardly the first to note this, but there's a there's a model of politics that is being practiced by Varnhagen in putting together these communities, these salons, in putting everyone in a room to talk. You know, it's it's not the public square that Arendt ends up praising throughout the rest of her career, um, but it is. You know, we we could think of it in terms of a. Uh, is it Warner on publics and counterpublics, right? It's a bit of a feminine counterpublic, um, but. Can you say a little bit more about that? That's really interesting that it's not political in the sense of legislature, big institutions of power, but something else. Absolutely. Um, well, I think politics for Arendt is about more than just governing and making laws. Politics is about the space of appearance in which other people see us act, see us advocate for the things that we believe, in which we then enter into dialogue with others. I think politics more than anything for Arendt is about dialogue, um, the back and forth. And she has this ideal of the Athenian Agora and the Roman Forum and this participatory politics, you know, participatory democracy is if you're putting her in a political theory shelf instead of a German shelf or a philosophy shelf, I'd put her on the participatory democracy shelf. Um, it's what she loves about early America. It's what she loves about the councils that emerge in every form of revolution, you know, these moments when people come together and start self-governing. Um, but I think in Von Hagen's salons, there is a sort of echo of that, or there are resonances with that. It's a similar type of thing. It's people coming together 
it's people coming together and speaking their minds and judging one another for their beliefs and doing all these things that aren't wants us to do in the public square but it's happening in this private space precisely because the public at that time was closed to Jews and was a place where you know you couldn't get this mixing that happened of men and women of Jews and Gentiles and so there is this space of freedom that emerges that looks a lot like the spaces of freedom that emerge in the French resistance, in the American revolution, in these other moments when Arendt praises the appearance of freedom. Um, and I think, here's where I will put on my little feminist scholar hat. I think that it has gone under-recognized as a form of politics, even within Arendt's corpus, because it is so gendered feminine, because we look at this and we still, even today in 2022, see a woman throwing parties and, you know, her friends are getting engaged to these men. And these engagements are a matter of their standing within society. It's a matter of, you know, I, for, I forget which of her friends it was who, you know, she refers to for the rest of her life as, you know, Greffin von whatever, like, that's a political title. That is a political category that this woman entered into by nature of marriage. You know, this was entirely a matter of sort of brokering positioning within society, brokering economic positioning. Um, you know, Rahel Varnhagen's engagements were, among other things, sort of the key to sustaining herself economically. She was trying to figure out how she was going to get by. She came from a relatively wealthy background, but you know, there were issues of inheritances, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this stuff was political to women in both the Arendtian sense, but also in our sort of more standard power and money sense. Um, it's really interesting. Can you say something? Because you mentioned it much earlier, kind of there's, um, a complicated relationship between RM to kind of feminist thought or scholarship, partly because she so brusquely rejects this affiliation with the women's movement or the burgeoning women's movement. But a lot of women have done that. It's not, she's not the only one, but can you say something? What you just said, what you described, I do think is rethinks politics and at least makes me aware to say, oh, not to dismiss certain kind of political formations as feminine or as not full of power, because power can be different, can be located in very different places. Yeah, um, and I think that this is something that Arendt herself under-theorized. You know, I don't think Arendt, I mean, we've all read the book, Arendt isn't talking at length about Rahel Varnhagen's politics and isn't talking about this as political action. Um, but I think that there's a possibility to build on using Arendt's categories, using her ideas of action, plurality, freedom, these sort of Arendtian buzzwords. If we go looking for where else can we find them? I think we see them here to talk about my own research for a moment and you know, in my dissertation, um, one of the things that I look at when talking about Arendt's writing on natality is whether 
parenting can be a political category in Arendt. She has all of this really sort of complicated writing on education, natality being the fact that, you know, we're all, we all die in the end. That's our mortality. That's one constraint, but we're all born into the world and we come into the world as strangers and somebody has to teach us how to be people. You know, a baby giraffe is born and stands up on its little wobbly giraffe legs like 30 minutes later, we need to learn what it is to be a person. And because the world that we live in was built by people, only people can teach us how to be people. And because our history defines some of the possibilities of who we can be, or at the very least the thrownness that we are given, we need to learn the past in order to act in the, in the future. And so the task, and I mean, we see this today, right, with debates about public education and who should be teaching what, right? We see the fact that the decision of how to teach children to act in the world and what the world is that they're going to be acting in is deeply, deeply political. And so is that another category of politics in our end? Is parenting, educating, you know, one of her most famous essays is The Crisis in Education, originally delivered in German as Die Krise in der Erziehung, right? Like it's Erziehung rather than Bildung. It's raising children rather than, you know, scholarly education. That's interesting to me as someone who's, you know, trying to figure out my own path in the world as a woman, trying to figure out what categories of action are available to me. You know, I think we ignore the feminine forms of politics at our own peril um, because they are real sort of sources of power that someone is going to tap into at some point. Courtney, can you stay with that for a moment? Yeah. It's maybe, you brought it up. What, what do you mean by you sort of, for you as a scholar, as a woman to sort of find your own place? Because we talked a little earlier about Von Hagen, about Arendt finding their place. And I'm really interested that you just said that. Like, what does that mean to find your place? And you're at Stanford University, at an institution that would proclaim of course, every path is open to anyone, like all of the institutions of higher learning, pretty much, not all of them, but most of them secular ones. But what do you mean by that, to try to find your place and what you just said, that there are other, other things that are untapped or that could be tapped that maybe uh, are not as conventional or as known or that are resources that yet could be activated? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I am, I'm currently at Stanford. I'm approaching the end of my PhD and I'm looking at the academic job market, right? I am looking at the possible next steps for my career, things that would allow me to do the teaching that I love to do, allow me to do the research that I would love to do. There are ways in which academia has become much more welcoming to women and much more welcoming to women who want to have families. You know, my, my mother is a professor 
And so comparing the experiences that she has had, that some of her doctoral students had, you know, she has a, she had a doctoral student who happened to be pregnant when she went on the job market. And so only took interviews places she could drive to. And I'm like, oh man, if, you know, if she could have gone on the job market in the era of the Zoom interview, um, you know, it would have been incredible for her. Um, but there's other ways in which as the research demands get ever, ever higher in the ever ratcheting arms race of publications, as the jobs get more and more precarious and a higher percentage of academic labor gets done by adjuncts, lecturers, rather than people with a tenure track position, you know, in addition to some of the academic freedom angles of tenure, there's also stability, right? Like how many times is a young academic expected to move in the first five years of her career, first 10 years of her career? These are questions that I'm asking myself. And, you know, like Arendt, I am looking for places that my voice can be heard thank you again for having me on this podcast. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't say thank you for that. Um, like Arendt, I am fascinated by the porous borders between the academic world and the public square. I am not on Twitter. Um, I don't think that Twitter is a particularly conducive public square to the type of thinking and conversations that I like to have. Um, you may have noticed that I, my, my thoughts tend to ramble a little bit. Um, I don't compose tweets very well. But... It's actually quite useful what you just said. And I actually think listening to you is very powerful and very moving. And in a way, I think Aaron would have very much, almost in spite of herself, listened to you and said, oh, yes. And she says these very entertaining and correct things and academia and academic publications are generally... A, completely irrelevant. Uh, what academics publish is useless because it's a machine that satisfies some other need. And for her, this independence of thought that earlier we characterized as kind of romantic introspection was always generative and exciting and powerful. And she bristled at every attempt to curtail that. So she kept on reactivating it, I think, in herself. And she would have said to you, of course, but don't find a job where you just commit, stay in one place forever. That is just the death of the mind, kind of. And you would say, well, the precariousness and getting a salary and all that. And she was completely aware of this as a refugee, as she herself wrote about, and we were as an immigrant, as a, as a woman, as someone who never had tenure. But I think these questions are for her worked out. Do you think at some point Arendt misses some of them because she was of exceptional intelligence? And I think there's something where occasionally she can really condescend and say, well, you know, bootstrap your way out of your own condition by thinking publishing writing. And she was a very, you know, kind of a productive person in that sense. But I'm curious whether you find some inspiration, at least in this dimension of her, that she says, you you have to keep on rediscovering your independence of thought. 
Absolutely. Um, and I think, I think I feel a real inspiration in how much of her work was done in spaces that we would today call para-academic. Um, and I think that there's a lot of incredible intellectual work being done in para-academic spaces. And I think more and more, you know, the sort of path is going to be cobbling together here and there these opportunities. Um, I would be, I mean, I would be interested to see what, you know, everybody always wants to see what would Arendt say of today's world. Um, but I think I would be most interested in her perspective on academic disciplines as such, um, because her work ends up studied in, you know, in German studies, in philosophy, in religious studies sometimes, in political theory sometimes. You know, she does not fit in the neat academic boundaries, um, which, you know, does not make her a particularly pragmatic subject for a dissertation um, <laughs> because, you know, is, is she part of German studies? That, that remains an open question. She is, but she, she obviously is, but she's everything else too, right? And I think insofar as, and I'm, I'm going all the way back to Weber because he said it better than anybody, insofar as the financial pressures of academic research encourage epistemological and disciplinary blinders, encourage us to ask specific questions with the aim of getting published and not explore widely and not integrate between subjects. And insofar as the more these pressures ramp up, the more we do it, and the more we do it, the less relevant our work is. And the less relevant our work is, the less money there is to fund it. And the vicious cycle goes around and around and around. Um, and he, I mean, he called it all in science as a vocation. And that was 100 years ago, and it's only gotten worse. Um, I think Arendt wanted to be free from disciplines. And and yet also wanted to be somewhere that serious thought was being done. Um, and so like, I don't think she'd be on Twitter. I'm not even sure she'd be on Substack. I love Substack. There's fascinating work being done there. Um, I'm not sure she'd be writing on the internet. I don't know if the internet encourages the kind of thought that she wanted to practice. Um, mm -hmm. I wish I could like bring her and sit her at my table and light a cigarette for her and ask but well it, it goes to the heart of um what she calls thinking which to me and i don't know but i mean maybe you can weigh in on this to me thinking for her is both this intensely private possibility to take yourself out of the world and then also to communicate with others and it's always both. It's this kind of, she, you can feel her joy at trying to work something out in an essay. You can also see where she's working something out and you think, wow, I wish she had talked to somebody about this because occasionally she is kind of off because she sort of gets invested into a thought and then the, and then 
right, dialectical, but in some ways, she's also always invested in in this kind of communication. And her teaching, her letters, I think after Eichmann, her teaching becomes more important for her. From her letters, her diaries, you realize her, her students sustain her more than her colleagues, which I find kind of remarkable or telling also, because the colleagues are mostly academics or journalists or historians who have a real problem with her for many reasons. One of them is that she doesn't fit into their categories. But I'm kind of interested in sort of what, what you raised as a, as a question with Amir once when like, what is her, this idea that she as a thinker is a thinker, but she's, she wants to engage with others, which is the model of this Von Hagen Salon, who is just this woman who just sort of cannot contain herself because she has so many ideas and she isn't really educated properly and she has to share them with somebody because that is the joy of her life and the, the essence of herself. Well, I think, Uli, uh, it goes back to the notion of thinking as long as we think thinking together with, you know, judging and judgment. So it's not a thinking completely in retreat from the world. And it's not a thinking of self-indulgent. It's a thinking uh, that always includes as a possibility, maybe even as an imperative, uh, the need to come to judgment. Uh, and as we know, her notion of judgment uh, always includes broadening the way we see ourselves to include also others before we come to judgment. Um, so it's a form of thinking, which I think stands at least, you know, to some extent in opposition to what we find in today academia in which, you know, we work and we think in very clear silos, uh, be it disciplines or when we write, you know, our little essays and our little books, you know, for academic presses. Uh, and we continue these conversations, you know, in, in very limited silos. Um, I think she poses for us a challenge, you know, Courtney, I have to think a lot about what you say about social media um, you know, I'm also not on social media, but I constantly ask myself if this is not for myself, not for you, a, a way of retreating from the world. I know what, being very precious as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I can't get myself, you know, to do it uh, just because I don't want to spend the time and the mental energy doing it. Uh, but I, I must admit that every once in a while I do kind of ask myself the question, well, you know, in your time, this is a sort of, you know, public or public sphere. Uh, can one allow oneself, you know, not to be a part of it? And I don't have the answer, of course. Um, I think it's a, <clears throat> excuse me. I think it's a public sphere themed video game. Honestly, I don't think, sorry to interrupt you, but no, no, I, no. I think the things that are happening on Twitter feel like action, but aren't. And it feels like speech, but it isn't. And, you know, you feel like you're in dialogue with people, but nobody's mind is actually getting changed. You know, it's, it's theater. It's performance in the worst sense of the word. It's, I, I, think, I think the thing that makes it so very pernicious is that it feels feels like an Arendtian public square, but 
there's none of the possibility to really meet people halfway because you really are just alone in a room with your thoughts at the end of the day. And I think gathering together, and I, I'm, I'm conscious of the irony of the fact that we are doing this podcast on Zoom. Um, we are not together, um, but I think gathering together changes how people relate to each other. Um, I think it is not a coincidence that several of my favorite podcasts are recorded with the hosts sitting in the same room and they're recording it for, you know, the people to watch, which is its own thing, right? The sort of parasocial, almost voyeuristic aspect of watching other people do dialogue, watching other people do politics. Um, but I think, I think it matters that you actually meet people face to face. Um, and I think social media doesn't allow you to do that. So you don't need to feel bad about not being on Twitter. Just stay, <laughs> just stay away. There's nothing good there. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting what you're saying in the context of Arendt of that I think she, like I would think, what is the value of being in the room with others? There's an enormous value. Uh, she has a lot of things to say about uh, people in public places. She's very skeptical and worried about the mob, the people, too many people together who are not thinking, actually just moving in some direction without a goal. But I think that's Twitter. Yeah, I think it's really <laughs> worthwhile because since she put into, since she put so much weight and gra like gravitas on this idea of dialogue and conversation and an open-ended exchange, that at least we have a model to think. Okay, if this is a model, if it works, it worked up to a point. It's not Twitter. Can it be recreated or is it even a loss if it doesn't exist anymore? Maybe it's a loss, maybe it's not a loss. And that's why I think when, she's, when she talks about her own teaching, what happened in her teaching was very different from what happened in the controversies around her books. Uh, and it's not that all her students agreed with her. And it's not that she agreed with all her students, but disagreement went to some other place. It wasn't just disagreement in order to sort of, I'm going to beat you with my argument and then I've defeated you. But I think it's really worthwhile to think because you know a lot of the irony is there's so many podcasts about social media, which sort of you know the deconstructing social media. But Arendt at least realized in the 20th century, after the great catastrophes, political catastrophes, human catastrophes, she put so much emphasis on what she calls thinking and action or this kind of exchange and dialogue. And that's I think worth retaining from her and with Von Hagen, it's bizarre that she comes up with this woman. And as you said, she's a young PhD student in with Jaspers and Heidegger and Husserl, they're these kind of heavy hitter phenomenologists. And she says, I'm gonna subject this Jewish woman who wrote a lot of letters to this phenomenological experiment and do a kind of existentialist interpretation of her life. And this is what a life um, is a really worth a life worth living when you really examine yourself and interrogate yourself, all your emotions, all your experiences, and here are the limits to that project. It's just an amazing thing. She does it, and what I love what you said, she does it almost, and Amir said, she knows. People are going to say, what, who are you writing about? What is this? This is not, she's not writing on Goethe. She's not writing on Brentano, on Kant. I mean, she could have picked a lot of people who are male, super big philosopher, poet, thinkers. And she goes, I'm gonna do a dissertation on this woman who just had everybody come to her garret and talk a lot. And she wrote a lot of really kind of unruly letters. 
it's just amazing. I mean, if some ways, if someone came today and said, I'm writing a dissertation on this, I would think, what are you doing? What is, who is this person? Mm. But that Arendt thought she is my best friend. Like, I actually just think this is amazing. She says, this is the woman who is my best friend, who is this unruly, uneducated woman who doesn't accept her categories and then has all these people come to her house for a while um, who just talk a lot. It's an idea well, like of social practice that's really, it's actually quite radical. And it, to me, the other part that I was really interested in what you said, it's a way of coding political work as a feminine space that is dismissed continually. And if it wasn't for this book, to be honest with you, I wouldn't have heard about Von Hagen. My sister in whose office I'm recording this said, that is one of the few books I read is Von Hagen's letters. Not one of the few books she read, but one of the few books out of this romantic period among all these poets. And I said, why? She said, because she was always presented to me as a very, very, very powerful woman. But she had no power. She just hosted nice dinner parties. Mm. <laughs> well, so I think what you but, did really made me rethink what is power, what is politics, what is the space of exchange? Sorry. Well, to go back to your question of like, how would we even rebuild it? Right? Like, I don't know how to build the Athenian Agora. I don't even know how to build Arendt's career. I could be Rahel Varnhagen. And I think, I think that actually really does matter that we can draw inspiration and so can you, right? Like you also can host a dinner party. It's not, it's, there's nothing inherent in being a woman that says that only women can host dinner parties. Um, but it's a model of political action based in friendship that I think is so necessary in this world that is just riven with, you know, people trying to dunk on each other. Like the opposite of dunking on someone on Twitter is inviting them over for dinner. Mm. Courtney, can I say something? But before I, I say this, I'd like to, you know, kind of admit to the fact that, you know, I'm an academic, I have a position, I have tenure at a place like Stanford. I'm, you know, I speak or I say what I say, you know, from an incredible, you know, incredibly privileged, position um, still I mean if we if we think for a moment um, about Arendt and about Van Hagen um, and about the choices Arendt makes you know including the choice to write her habilitation on Van Hagen uh, you know it's it always you know one, one of the things I find most striking about Arendt is you know the kind of things she does job-wise, you know, almost throughout her adult life. You know, before she gets invited to the University of Chicago and to Princeton, et cetera, et cetera, she's doing all sorts of things, you know, for the youth Aliyah and for the, you know, reconstitution of Jewish intellectual life and libraries in Europe with Salo Baron. And she's an editor at Schocken and she writes little essays for Afbau. You know, wherever she is, wherever she is, in whichever context she is, she lives a life and she's surrounded with friends and keeps them very close to her heart and corresponds with them. And has, you know, what we have to call a life, like Van Hagen's life. You know, okay, she was not a Goethe, she was not a Schlegel, and she was not. I know what, a professor, of course, 
But where she was, she had a life and this life was rich and wonderful and the letters attest to it. And same with Arendt. You know, I think the, 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 the marvel of the life of both these incredible, you know, intellectuals and women, of course, is that wherever they were, you know, they had a rich, meaningful life. And again, I'm saying it, you know, from position of privilege, but when I'm thinking about you, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that wherever you will be, you will have a rich, meaningful life. Thank you for that. Well, I think, Courtney, like I would second this, and I think what I take from this book of Von Hagen, it's, to me, an incredibly energizing book. Von Hagen was undaunted, this incredibly courageous person. He was not at all naive. Um, and, and incredible intelligence, um, but so committed to using this intelligence to understand herself in this context of where she was, and in some ways not to withdraw. And in some, so for me, what Amir is saying is like this commitment to living a full life is what that to me, I take a lot from Aaron, from her letters, from her, her ideas of action, of natality is the one contingent thing we all subjected to, which means we are capable of contingent things. We're capable of doing something unexpected, which is really, she just gets so excited about this, about this idea that we could do something new and different. I think her own, um, romantic life is really amazing. Once she says in, I think it's in the origin of totalitarianism, she says, and this part of life should be ruled by passion, never by the state. And she just accepted passion is this thing in her life, this force in her life, it should, it should be ruled by passion, the life of the private life. And so never be interviewed. But I think the idea that a life can be consciously created and someone can commit to it with all the risks it takes. And I think this is what the book is so interesting. She keeps on saying, Von Hagen is defeated. This didn't work out. This guy turned her down. She has to retreat. She has to go back. She has to do this. But somehow she's never defeated out of life. And then, so, and um, to me, the one sentence I love, which I think is quoted all over the place, is like uh, Rachel Von Hagen exposed herself to life the way you expose yourself to the rain without an umbrella. And I, it's, such a, it's such a very, it's a very funny kind of statement. It's just like, oh yeah, I want to just expose myself to life, to the good and the bad of it. What is your take on this particular book? Because I think when people go to Arendt, they read um, probably the origins of totalitarianism as political theory. They, they read the Eichmann book as a kind of controversy and as a particular interpretation of what evil is. They read the essays and probably, I guess, the human condition as philosophy. I'm not sure. Why would you send booked people to this book, to this biography of Von Hagen? I think it's as close as Arendt ever gets to writing an autobiography. <laughs> she lets herself talk about Von Hagen's Jewishness and Von Hagen's womanhood. Um, and I think for, for readers who want to see Arendt think through what it means to be a Jewish woman and who ask, why didn't she ever write about gender? Why didn't she ever write about, you know, what it feels like to be this type of person? Um, this is the book where she does it. 
And that's, I think that's why she's so kind, but also so critical, but also just so loving of Farnhagen because, because it's her, right? Um, I forget who it was. I had a friend or a professor or someone in, someone in undergrad said to me once that every work of academic scholarship is an autobiography. Um, that is especially true of this book. Um, <laughs> that's why you read it, because it's Aaron's autobiography. That's beautiful. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's a great, that's a very strong recommendation because it does also answer some of these questions of what is Aaron's attitude toward or take on the question of women, the mm -hmm. question of uh, difference all kinds of difference. Jewishness is a difference, but all kinds of difference in society. What is her take on equality? You can find that in this book, what she says about what is inequality as a social category versus political category. So I feel that's a great, and it's her autobiography, that's a great way of looking at it. Amir, what's your sense why, why, why you would turn to this book uh, by Arendt? Because, uh, you know, this is a book, uh, Again, you know, I'm a, I'm almost ashamed to say what I'm about to say because, of course, I'm not a woman. But still, I think, since you asked me, I will say, it, because this is a book about what it means to be a woman. Period. And I mean, for me as a man, I mean, this is this is an opening. It's kind of someone opens the door to me for me, you know, to say, here, take a look. This is how it feels like. This is how it expresses itself. Uh, don't think for a moment this is a historical book about 18th, 19th century or about Arendt, you know, in the 1930s. No, this is a book about what it means to be a woman. Uh, and again, you know, I'm, I'm, I mentioned in the beginning, you know, Rachel Kask, uh, you know, if you read Rachel Kask's novels and essays and you put side by side, you know, this oeuvre, with the Van Hagen book, you know, you, you will see striking similarities. And it's not a coincidence, I think. You know, we, we delude ourselves to think, you know, with uh, all kinds of revolutions which took place, you know, since then until today, we delude ourselves to think that, you know, women have it good, it's all done, you know. The arc of history has bent in the right direction toward justice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. And again, Roe v. Wade being just one example of something that goes so deep and is so broad and is so um, venomous for our lives as individuals, as communities. So read this book in order to live personally and as a community a different kind of a life. And I want to thank uh, the two of you. Uh, so I want to remind our listeners, this was a conversation with Courtney Hartrick, who is um, a PhD candidate about to finish at Stanford University, who's writing a dissertation on Hannah Arendt. So thank you, Courtney, for joining me on the Think About It podcast. Amir Eschel is professor of the humanities at Stanford University, who has been a previous guest and talked about the poet Paul Ceylon. Um, 
I have other episodes. Uh, the philosopher Beatrice Longness talked about Immanuel Kant's What is Enlightenment. I've had Catherine Stimson talk about Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. Samantha Rose Hill has talked about Hannah Arendt and the late Richard Bernstein, who is very much missed. Um, so there are other episodes that connect to this. To me, this is very um, powerful to think that Arendt's biography of uh, Rachel or Rachel von Hagen is a book about what it means to be a woman and that it could be read in this way. And it is also so much more because it lays out the problems of the 20th century that Arendt addresses that are still with us today. Uh, so to our listeners, thank you uh, for being part of this for such a, for such a wide ranging long conversation. And Courtney, I would love to have you back for your other chapters on Arendt. Uh, it's a pretty, um, I don't know, inexhaustible topic. <laughs> um, but I'm really happy that we ended on this note that this is, uh, this is the closest and the, we will come to getting Arendt's uh, own voice about her own life. This is her autobiography. Thank uh, you for having me. I'd love to come back. Absolutely. And, I, and, it, and at this moment, um, you know, I wish you the best of luck with your you know, completion of your degree. And I'm happy that this podcast can be one way to be a kind of para-academic space, as you said, to actually, to actually think together. And Amir is always uh, fantastic. Amir and I do a whole other set of podcasts with Stanford and Deutsches Haus at NYU. So if listeners want to check those out, you can find those on our various websites. Thank you. On this note, Uli, thank you for the initiative for the podcast and just being who you are. <laughs> Thank you. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.